Welcome to Place by Design. You are listening to a podcast dedicated to the exploration of places in which we live, why they matter, and how we plan them. This is recorded live in southwest Michigan, and I'm your host, Garth Woodruff. This week, we have Connor Smith. Connor was one of my students in international agricultural development. He found his way through a number of landscape and urban design classes in his undergrad and has now combined them into a master's track at Cornell University. He is in between semesters and shares his journey as an Ivy League grad student within city and regional planning. Join me as I talk to my second most favorite student. How's it going there, Connor? It's going pretty good. Your still picture is tripping me out, man. I'm trying to find an appropriately uh, themed background. Oh, yeah. So you're looking for the uh, big, big bookshelves to put behind you so that you look more intelligent than you are. Yeah, that's what I need. Dude. If, if you're at Cornell University, I don't think you need to worry about the big books behind you. I think that it speaks for itself. So um, quickly explain your program. Time frame okay. we know, but program focus, just like, so what exactly are you doing and what exactly does it mean? Okay, so I'm in a, like I said, the two, a two year program to get a master's in city and regional planning, uh, which they call a MRP uh, degree. Okay. And then uh, the, the basic components are, I have two years of, of classes and uh, a thesis I have to do. Okay. Uh, the classes are half of your credits have to be in the department mm-hmm. and half your credits can be anything that you can prove that re- at least semi relates to your degree. Basically everything but PE classes and wine tasting. Uh, I love that. So uh, you can't, you can't quite squeeze those ones in, but, but pretty much there's a pretty broad spectrum of classes to choose from. And then my thesis can either be a full like 100 and something page thesis, mm-hmm. or it can be what they call like a working paper, which is shorter uh, and, and is a pub generally hoping to be a published paper. Right. Right. Yeah. They do that with some PhDs where, um, you know, everybody approaches the dissertation in, in a different way at every university. And some are like, we want you to write a 300 page dissertation that's going to go sit on a shelf. Um, but there's a bunch of biology and life science type programs that are like, what we'd rather you do is produce some measurable research, produce three publishable papers, and at a minimum before you get your PhD, one has to be published. Um, so there's a lot of journeys. As a matter of fact, in the um, international development masters at the at andrews they have you can do the traditional thesis of 100 pages or whatever or you can write for a grant which if you really write for a good grant it could be bigger and more work than you know um except for the difference is of course the difference between any of those is do you walk away with something practical that you can hang your hat on or do you walk away something that has some deep learning that you're going to figure out how to capitalize on later and and most of the most of the professors will say when you ask them, do I, uh, should I do a working paper or a thesis? They'll, they'll say something along the lines of, do you want to get your PhD? And if you okay. say yes, then you go to do your thesis. <laughs> right. If you want to teach and do that, if you're just looking to get a job and work in the field, write a working paper that will set you up to, to meet people. Yeah, set you up to meet people, um, add to your resume that says, I actually published something. So then 
Um, there's this guy, Connor Reed Smith. What's he going to do? So my plan is uh, now that I've finished my first year, I have most of my required classes out of the way. Um, nice. And I'm looking at my thesis. There's very few required classes. So there's, there's two classes that they call competency classes, which is mm -hmm. um, uh, stats and economics, both of which I had to take because I didn't take an undergrad. Nice. Um, uh, I still have to take stats, but I took economics. Um, and then there's a couple that's like introduction to planning, introduction to planning methods, and, and one other one. So okay. you can, it's only really five, maximum of five required classes you have to take. Okay. Um, and then there's some other requirements, like you have to take a law class and you have to take other, other stuff like that, um, sure. a workshop and things like that. Um, my emphasis is in international planning. Perfect. It sounds about right uh, for you. But right now I'm focusing my research on refugee and migrant communities in New York State. Ah, oh, that sounds familiar too. So I'm beginning to expand my research there. I was looking at the potential of doing something overseas, uh, but with the virus and everything, I figured Ooh. it was uh, a lot easier to try to plan something close to home. So then does this become, so then specifically, is this a, a working paper when you're done or a thesis? This will, for me, this will be a working paper. Okay. So then does that mean that we can assume that your goal moving forward is to maybe step out into to the workforce from this point? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely plan on doing that uh, as my main, as my main thing to. I gotcha. I gotcha. And then, and then you'll probably seek NGOs that are stateside doing work overseas in urban planning settings of some kind or another. Yeah. I'm not really, I'm, I'm not locking myself into a specific kind of organization or, or, or even job title yet. Um, there are a lot of planners doing things that don't have the name planner attached to them. Uh, right. More and more every year are, are coming out as analysts or programmers or stuff like that. Right. Um, and so I, I haven't really decided. Uh, this summer, I have my internship with a nonprofit that is doing community and economic development. Okay. Uh, for, for the Adirondack, the North Country region. So I'm kind of looking at that as, a, as an option or an opportunity, but also state and local governments uh, have refugee service uh, organizations and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So then what kind of refugees are coming into New York? Well, if you look starting in about the mid 1970s, um, just about every refugee sending uh, country has sent refugees to New York. Um, Starting especially in the late 90s uh, with the Rust Belt and the decline of American manufacturing, uh, right. the upstate New York, Syracuse, Utica area uh, is the very tip of the Rust Belt. And that area has been experiencing population decline. And they have been supplementing that decline or hiding that decline by resettling refugees. Uh, one of my research areas that I'm hoping to focus is an area is a city called Utica. And right. they're up to about 25% of their population being refugees now. Um, so it started with Vietnam, Southeast Asia, um, now uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, former Soviet Union countries. And, and there's also a large group from, from Burma, the Karen, uh, that, that are in the area as well. So then they're not domestic refugees. These are literally where instead of um, fleeing, crossing a border and finding themselves in a place of flux, they're actually being pulled out, um, transplanted. So then these refugee camps have got to be transitional refugee camps, right? They're so, like, so, go ahead. 
Yeah. So what happens is they, they, I'll use the case of the Karen because I know it a little bit better. Uh, most of the Karen left Burma. They've, what, they've been fighting a civil war for 50 plus years now, basically since oh. the end of World War II. They've had some kind of militarized resistance. Um, and they've gone into uh, they've gone into camps in Thailand, refugee camps in Thailand that are run by the UN and other organizations. Those that fill out all the paperwork and qualify for resettlement are then settled by the United Nations who kind of look for host countries for them. In this case, the U.S. was the host country selected. Then there's a U.S. government agency that for refugee resettlement that assigns them to New York. <laughs> and then New York State has an organization within health and uh, family services, that's refugee services, that assigns them to a local uh, refugee organization and resettles them in that area. So sometimes they're, the refugee actually settling at the local level is usually done by a nonprofit that can be related to a church or other organizations and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So the, the Catholic mm -hmm. Charities runs a couple. Um, there's some non-religious oriented ones that are that are around Buffalo area too. So yeah, Dude, these are all. Are these aren't people coming across the border in boats. These are all <laughs> started. It, and it takes. It can take many many years. So oh yeah. You, you do realize the irony in that because it's like really people in Buffalo should be tra uh, replaced or, tra or transplanted and refugeed in other parts of the country where the cities don't suck. I mean, I mean, Buffalo is about as depressed as, well, we won't say Burma, but I mean, Buffalo's had its economic struggles over the last 20 years. Well, and, and it was slash is considered maybe an economic development strategy to bring in refugees who are happier to work low-paying jobs in yeah. service industries as manufacturing right. goes away hmm. uh, and who generally which we'll have to get we i don't have the data right in front of me who generally raise kids that become middle class higher educated right or at least have a chance at it and right because to get from burma to buffalo is probably quite a struggle, which means that you, you're working with an individual who is motivated, driven, looking for the future, looking for a better place for their kids. And what better kind of person to stick in a city that is having some struggles than somebody with a better attitude than Garth, right? Uh, so, 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 go ahead. Yeah, so that, that's kind of that's the idea. Um, it's not always true, of course. They also settle refugees in these cities that have generally high rates of crime, higher than the surrounding uh, rural communities. Um, I did a project for my GIS class that was looking at it, uh, so just a few of the factors. So they, the cities like Buffalo ha do have higher crime rates, but they also have higher real GDP and several other characteristics uh, as, as settlement locations. But yeah. Yeah, the, the current you know, administration has has about halved or or less the number of refugees settling in New York. So that's also a point of of debate in terms of the, just the current New York administration or federal federal administration. Federal. Yeah, um, there's been a lot of talk about that because at one point before the pandemic, we were worried about bigger issues, and some of them were over in Europe. You know, with people trying to like get safe. And Germany, there's been a, a handful of countries who's really laid out some. The, the welcome mat for a number of um, individuals. And when our administration 
came into power three years ago, they definitely pulled some of that back. Um, our administration clearly is not a fan of international individuals coming into our country, whether that be, like you said, in a boat on the, to our shores, across the rivers, or on airplanes. The generally, um, not a fan of that. So I'm not surprised. And I would assume that some of the, a good deal of the funding for like even New York probably comes from the federal uh, government kind of trickling down into the communities. Hmm. So um, let's step back to the GIS because I was going to be kind of like, I was curious about that. I assume that even though you're not doing landscape architectural urban, I mean, urban planning is very GIS based. It's very data driven planning, which I feel, which generally the inception of that started in landscape architecture. You know, there's people using computers, designing cities and big urban areas and parks, and they started to collect data and they started to put it into GIS. And then all of a sudden urban planning kind of like explodes a little bit. Um, so is that one of your competency classes, I presume? It's actually not. You can graduate with a, with a master's without taking any GIS oh, if you wow. want to. Uh, it's not recommended. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't think uh, so. But it is uh, actually not required. And I, I'm not sure if it's required for landscape designers either, or if they have moved on to, to Rhino and, and another 3D, like to, air quotes, design programs. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I, I have a I don't exactly know all their requirements now. But yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that it's not, it's encouraged but not required. Well, I will tell you, I, um, I am good friends with the executive director of the local planning commission for three counties. And I think you know mm -hmm. that from your time here at the university. And we talk on the side, I've been in and out of his office a lot. And he's got one person in there that does a lot of GIS work. And from what I sense looking from the outside in, it takes a special person to just sit down and crunch those kinds of numbers and add information and add information and get excited about maps when they're done, you know? Um, and I think that there's a lot more people in your situation who hope to get out and not sit there at a computer and put data in and pull data out. So, um, yeah, uh, so maybe they just know that not everybody's just, just not everybody's gonna be okay with GIS and there's gonna be the occasional person who gets excited about it. The accountant type. Yeah. And, and there are, I have classmates that are GIS wizards. Um, oh, really? That are just uh, amazing. And, and there are other, we teach two GIS classes, an introductory and, a, and, a, and an advanced. And they say uh, just about everyone should take the introductory so that when your GIS technician or someone brings you a plan and you want to move something two inches, you know how to move it or you want to change the colors of something like that. Yeah. But yeah. if you really like GIS and you go take the advanced, you expect to get a job doing GIS regularly. <laughs> wow. And stuff. But you know, so. but there's a, there, there are accountants, there are editors, there's people that really get into just sitting down and oh, yeah. ciphering through the details. I get super nerdy about the GIS output. Like, I love being able to look at the data and look through things and analyze it and make correlations. I would not be very good at sitting down there and cranking the workout. I would be, I feel like, I feel like I'm a good employee, but if I was in that situation, I'd get fired. I just, I would have a hard time. I just have a hard time staying to it. 
for me taking the class it was kind of it was pretty fun because we generally it doesn't have super strict guidelines in terms of you have to produce a map but you can change the symbols and edit the colors and do mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it was kind of a fun creative yeah part of it was a little bit creative in trying to make the maps look good um, but we were also given neat clean data to use <laughs> mm, right because you can and easily get caught up in five or six and i and i did when i was working on my final project for the class get get caught up in, in three hours of just trying to get your your charts and, and data right so that they yeah. match up so that you can do interesting stuff uh, it was it was a fun experience but i don't see myself as quite the gis uh, wizard uh, right in the future but I, I, I took a class a year ago um, that was a PhD class that was focused on SPSS, which is the, you know what SPSS is. So it's like the, it's uh, basically a really advanced Excel souped up spreadsheet that you put data in and then you pull out um, uh, results and you can determine pretty quickly whether or not, uh, you know, the margin of error is high enough and all that kind of stuff. Um, it was a, it was a lot of nerdy putting stuff in and then there there was so many different ways that you could kind of like cipher through the data and get it coming out the other side and it was the same situation where it's like i basically stepped into that just well enough and just long enough so that if i'm looking at uh, qualitative results of something i can talk the language i actually i almost feel like 80% of the classes you take in college or even in grad school are that way. You know, you take irrigation class, not so you can be an irrigator, but so that when you hire the irrigator, you know if you're getting screwed, um, you know? And then there's this like pocket of classes that really get you a specialty. And then there's all these other ones around there that are just kind of like making you not stupid, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's definitely true. I took a class like, there's so many times you're sitting in class and you're going, the likelihood of me ever using this right. is pretty low. And by the mm -hmm. time I do it, do use it, mm -hmm. I'm going to have forgotten this already and have to teach myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh it. no. If I, it's been a year, year and a half since I looked at SPSS and I wouldn't know where to start. It's and it's only been a year. Uh, yeah. Well, it's the, but the thing though is also it's that useless nugget that you do remember that either lands you the job or impresses the client, you know? Um, so, but the, then that kind of like brings up some other questions that I have for the world of Connor and, and it's some of those transitional, uh, steps. So you took a little bit of time off. Um, and then you went from Andrews university undergrad to Cornell masters how big of a step was that? And what was like some of the toughest things that you bumped into? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you're right. So I graduated, um, in the summer and I took a year off, but yeah, I, I when I graduated, I wasn't pl planning on applying for master's degrees. I was thinking I was going to, I was thinking I was going to poke around for a bit and, and find a job. You're and I travel. wanted I was interested in going to new in, in moving to New York uh, to work because I okay. had some experience and I knew some people out there and um, I went out there and I, I volunteered and worked at the summer camp where I had worked before trying to meet people, trying to talk to people. I got a couple interviews mm -hmm. and a ton of non-return phone calls and emails. 
Oh, nice. Uh, and so the camp, because it gets really cold out there, the camp closes. <laughs> right. Uh, President's Day weekend. So first weekend of October. And I was still there without a job. <laughs> Uh, and so I went home, <laughs> uh, the middle of October, I packed up my car the first day that it snowed, uh, and, and we just... shut the water off at the camp and I drove back um, home a little bit with my tail between my legs. Um, and, and looking back now, I had never really cultivated the relationships in New York that I needed to, or, or, uh. or expanded the connections. I didn't have any really one person to call and talk to that might know. Uh, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do e either uh, at having an international agriculture degree and trying to work in, in the U S uh, right. And so I, I came home and I thought, well, I can apply for, for master's degrees cause I'm not finding the jobs that I want and I don't have the connections to, to really find it. And talking to people in international development, like uh, they almost no one would even consider you for an internship unless you were working on a master's or had a master's. Wow. At one point, even ADRA wouldn't take me without a master's. Wow. Now okay. they've changed that a little bit. And if you know the right people, you can get an internship without a master's. But, uh, and now I think they have a new program that, that's much better uh, on the internship side. So I started applying and I applied to the University of Buffalo first because mm -hmm. I could apply to theirs without taking the GRE. <laughs> Oh yeah. Cause I was trying to avoid taking the GRE cause I don't like standardized tests and I hadn't Dude, studied. <laughs> you're a smart kid. You, I'm sure you like and teed, so teed off on the GRE. I got, I got into Buffalo. Um, and I, I was actually accepted to start in, in, in January if I wanted to. And I ended up, I remember that. Yeah. And, and taking the GRE and applying to more schools. Um, so I struggled through really bad studying for the GRE. Um, I got, I think I was in the, 46th percentile in math <laughs> really uh, and everything else i was in the 80s and 90s i think or, or something like that so you don't have to you don't have to nail every section to get into cornell is what i learned hey you that's can, good you can know. bomb you can bomb the math section pretty good um mm. or at least average <laughs> yeah uh, right and you know i never really knew how i was going to do in the writing section but i think i ended up pretty high and the reading comprehension was was pretty up there um and then so then I went overseas because my parents needed to get me out of the house and I wasn't willing to work a real job yet. <laughs> so I went to Uzbekistan and right. worked in agriculture development in Uzbekistan for, for a gentleman who was not well-trained or open-minded. Um, if you've been doing something for 20 years and not getting any results, rethinking your methods <laughs> is, is a valuable to place considering. to start. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I kind of realized that I could do this, but I didn't really want to. Uh, and, and so I was out there for a couple of months, learned a lot, did, you know, traveled and did, did a lot of fun things. Um, and I, while I was out there, I got accepted to Cornell. And um, I got accepted to a couple other schools on the West Coast, um, near, near my family and stuff. But mm -hmm. uh, Cornell and North Carolina were the two top schools that I applied to. Um, mm. And I don't think I got into North Carolina, um, but I got into Cornell, which was, it sits right around a top 10 program. And so I was really excited yeah. uh, to get in. So I was going to say that some of the challenges were just overcoming my own stubbornness and self-confidence and saying, well, I don't want to work that job or I don't want to do that. Or uh, I'm going to do fine on the GRE. Um, I ended up going to take it 
and then they canceled it. Like I had to drive three hours and then they canceled it like an hour before. And so we were all standing there in the parking lot. And then I had to come back two weeks later and drive even farther to another place in the snow and take it. Um, right. With, with stress, crazy. stress piling um, up behind you. Yeah. So then when I actually started the program here now, um, I've learned a lot, a lot of things. One of which is the things that you're not good at in undergrad, mm-hmm. you're still not good at in your master's. You're kidding. That's kind of shocking to most people. But for me, I felt like, oh, I'll get by <laughs> just like I did in undergrad. And um, you kind of get stuck with the same thing. So like I said, I didn't do great on the math section of, of the GRE, which yeah. I wasn't surprised at in the least. Um, and I had only taken one math class at Andrews, right. which was I think called reasoning with functions. And it was the mm-hmm. minimal math class I had to take yep. to pass. Yep. And yep. I got, yep. I, I mailed it in and didn't put much effort and I got like a B or a B minus in it. And I thought, great, I'm done with math for forever. Uh, and that's kind of come back to bite me in the butt. A little uh, bit of so, stats. Uh, econ was a little bit tricky at times. <laughs> uh, they try to make it not math heavy because they know a lot of the planners are not emphasizing in math and stuff. But right, right. One of, the, one of my reasons for going into planning was that the field has so many options and so many interests. And my okay. classmates represent people that have similar backgrounds to me and also people that are coming from completely different areas. So that's been nice. one of the joys and one of the interests. Um, there's a, a few of us that banded together to struggle through the stuff that required math. Yep. And a few of us that, um, other than that, I've, I've had a pretty good experience. Um, they tell you that, you know, grades don't matter too much and that you shouldn't worry about your grades. If you put in good effort, you'll make sure you pass. But they also, you can't get a certain, you can't get more than a certain amount of C's and you can't, <laughs> And they still give you grades, so it, yeah. it's definitely that stress. But I think it comes from the fact that we're all there by our own choice. Uh, yeah, parents really guilted them into it. Right, and we're all there to do our best. And, and you're so all adults. It's it's there's an element of personal pride that that wasn't there in undergrad. Um, mm. I mean, there's still there's still classes you kind of flake off or put off, but yeah, really that that the important aspect of it is that everyone's kind of there to to do their best. And, and that was something that it, it doesn't matter if you don't write a good paper. It's like, I want to write a good paper every time right. if I don't need to. Um, and so, and, and then there's some professors that I had, I had one this semester that I sent him a paper and I thought, Whoa, I'm done with that class. And, and an hour and a half later, I had an email that said, Oh, your paper's really good, but you could do this if you improved it. And he gave me really unhelpful advice, like make it sound less academic and make it more like you're writing for a different audience. And I was like, well, I get that, but I don't really know how to do it. And so we went, I went back and forth and I, I sent it to uh, my girlfriend, Amanda, to say, does this make any sense? How can I change this? <laughs> Wasn't she, was she like an English major? Uh, she did theology and speech pathology. That's right, that's major. right, that's right. So she, she proofread a lot of my papers. So big shout out to her. Find people to help you out. There's no shame in that. Oh, that baby, absolutely not. Yeah, either people and, to help you out or that whole like band of brothers where it's like you you end up having a handful of really close friends and you just you're all in the same place, you're all up to your waist in mud and you just kind of like love each other because you're trying to get through it together. Yeah. And they give you pointers and they shoot you a text and say, "Hey, I just looked at this online and come to find out XYZ is a, you know, a requirement." 
Yep. So, so that, that's super helpful. And we, with technology now, uh, every, we have a, a ton of WhatsApp, like group messages and stuff. I okay. think that's one of the things that makes planning more unique than even architecture or, or like the MBA and stuff is none of us are competing against each other, really. Um, none of uh, us are, yeah. there's not, there's not a list of top five planning organizations that we're all trying to get into. Everyone's doing completely different stuff. Really. Right. Because there's, because um, the breadth, you know, there's no wall street of planning. So. Yeah. Right. And because the breadth of areas that you can get into um, and the areas of specific discipline that you can get into within planning, there's just so much variety out there that everybody's going to like go into their own little world when you're done. And yeah. it's just not the same level of competition. Yeah. So, so we, it's pretty collaborative and helpful and, and planners as a whole are, are generally fairly altruistic because a lot of us have gotten into planning to help uh, some maybe injustice or just to, to try to make the world a better place. So sometimes our professors try to get us into debates or, or, fight against each other and they complain that we're too nice <laughs> right you're just a bunch of liberal lovey-doveys trying to like yeah, we're, uh, we're, yeah. fix the world uh, you see yeah uh, they say you see the other side too well <laughs> you're not supposed to think about the other side's arguments that nicely and stuff like that so yeah oh wow. that's kind of interesting but it's it's fairly in terms of we all have a group chat we ask questions we share articles and internships and jobs back and forth um and, and so that that's been a big help I did have one class that I took that um, was really difficult. It was Introduction to Methods, and it's taught by this professor that if you look at his resume, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. I did not understand his teaching style at all. <laughs> yeah, or lack thereof. Um, and he's yeah. an economist, and that's another thing about the program is we have Ooh. professors from other departments that teach planning classes that aren't planners. And yeah. uh, he's rubbed shoulders and co-written articles with Nobel Prize winners and all kinds of stuff. But I did not understand his teaching. And he has this test. We were all worried about this test and trying to figure what was on this test. And I asked one student. She's like, well, I don't know. I got a D on the midterm, which it's only it's one test and then a final project and a little bit of homework. She, she said, well, I got a D on the midterm uh, and an A on the final project. And I ended up with an A in the class. So I don't know. <laughs> And that so, was terrifying and also encouraging, but right, I got a 54% on that final. Oh my god! I got 54% on the midterm. You've and never was, gotten a grade like that in like it was, the last 10 years. It was one of the most like unpleasant educational experiences <laughs> of my life taking this test. I mean, everyone just came out of the test, like some mix of like, despair and anger and some people ended up doing pretty well on it and some people so, like me just ended up kind of bombing it which um i don't know what my final grade ended up in the class was um we were able to change grades to pass fail uh because the coronavirus, oh, right. which may have right, saved right. me a little bit on that class in particular um because <laughs> if the person that got an a and i both changed to su we will both get pass <laughs> yep but well, uh, some of that I, stuff is, is kind of crazy. Uh, I, took, I took agricultural economics at the University of Maryland. And I thought to myself that economics, you know, is going to be so logical and I've got a very logical problem solving mind that it's going to be, you know, things like supply and demand that you can totally wrap your head around. And it crushed me, dude. I was like, this is agricultural economics. This, it's about tomatoes going to McDonald's and hot dogs go into burger stands, you know? And it was like, and that's what we were talking about all the time. 
and I struggled so hard in that class. It was because it, and it had actually reminded me of Kinnaman's book, the whole thinking fast and slow. And like you take those tests in the back, in the back of his book and books in, in the appendix. And you're like, he says, you know, here are your two choices. Here's the problem. What's the answer? And you answer it. And then you read the real answer and you're like, wow, I am so stupid. And that's kind of how economics felt where it's like, it wasn't as logical as I thought it was going to be. And it wasn't quite as uh, intuitive as I thought it was going to be. And um, I worked my tail off for a C and I don't remember any of my grades at the university of Maryland 30 some years ago, but I do remember that one. And I don't know why, but anyway, so so now one of the, you know, you mentioned Amanda a minute ago and a little birdie said to me that you actually had something to announce that was personal about you and Amanda on my podcast today. Is that true? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. All right. Then I guess the little birdie was full of crap. All right. The little birdie was me. I was just going to give you a bit of a mess. Yes, it was. So, but she is, she is there in New York and she's doing grad school as well. Is she doing yeah. speech path? She, so she lives an hour away from me and works at, or is going to school at Syracuse University, SU. Oh, that's a good school too. Um, and she is doing a doctorate of audiology, which is oh, not okay. a PhD or a medical yep. doctorate. It is its own special doctorate, which is a whole nother podcast on, on degree inflation. And uh, there, there's, a, there's a podcast is, so like when you get to the doctorate level, or maybe if you get to the PhD, and most of the world doesn't really understand this. You know, there's like the, the doctorate of physical therapy. That one drives me nuts, right? It's mm -hmm. a one-year clinical doctorate. And that you get like, so like there are so many different doctorates. People think that they're all on the same playing field, but they're a big, big spectrum within doctorates. And you don't realize it until later. And then you get inside an academic crowd and everybody's snotty to each other. You know, like if you've got a PhD and you're standing to somebody next to a doctorate in audiology, they're not really a doctor, you know, <laughs> or so they think, if so the PhD thinks, you know, um, well, it's kind uh, that, that was an ongoing debate of if, if I have to call her Dr. Amanda. At some point. <laughs> oh, guarantee you. If I was your girlfriend, you'd be calling me Dr. Amanda. <laughs> Guaranteed. Um, when I started doing my PhD, Lonnie made it very clear that she was like, whatever, you're doing your thing for yourself. And I appreciate that. But I'm not gonna, you know, I'll never really, she'll always see me as Garth, or more as a captain than I than a doctor, you know, she, there's other things in my life that I've done that she'll hold on a higher level than my PhD will ever get to. And I'm okay with that, because I'm just doing it for my own self anyway, you know. Um, Anyway, and then she disparages me and I was doing some recording for a podcast and she's like, stop sounding like such a snotty professor. And I was like, I don't know how, I can't stop that. I'm telling a story about something and now you're telling me not to be me. I can't back that up. Well, um, so no big announcements from Amanda. Are you guys on, on a pretty um, consistent pace together? Will she be kind of wrapping up pretty close to when you're wrapping up? Uh, no, her schedule is crazy. Um, so she has four years because it's a doctorate with no so it's masters. Pretty, it's still pretty robust. That's still so good. Okay. You do three, you do two years of, of in-class work, right. Uh, of school work. You do one year of local, like clinical rotations. 
uh, they call them externships. So you do one yeah. part of a semester at a hospital and one part at a school and then one part at, at another private practice. And then she does the last year, which is externships anywhere in the U.S., anywhere you can basically right find and do they have do they have a certain set of competencies like she has to do four externships at four different types of settings yeah or something like that yeah, yeah. that's ex- yeah. yeah that's exactly how it is. but she has year uh she has year-round classes so Ooh. they do three semesters so for this semester with the coronavirus cornell got bumped back we were supposed to finish on the 18th and we ended up finishing on or the i don't know something like that the, the 15th and we ended up finishing on the 23rd so we actually got bumped okay. back a week Okay. And she had a week or two off before me. She got done early May. She had like two weeks off and then she started classes again. So she started classes before I was done with my classes. I gotcha. And then she goes straight through basically. That's, Uh, that actually sounds like, uh, in all fairness, that sounds like a fairly robust doctorate. So she, so she might actually, she might actually require you to call her doctor and you might have to do it. She's threatened to do a PhD as well because you can do a PhD in audiology as well. Yeah. Yep. No, but, they've got um, the they've got the same thing at um, Western uh, Michigan here, and it's the same thing. You can go either route. So there's yeah. So what's the party scene like at at Cornell? How how is it? Well, to be honest, I have no idea. Oh, um, man. but I will say that uh, you don't have a social event that doesn't have alcohol. That's rule number one. You just, okay, there's so that's no way rule number to get one. A, there's no way to get around it. Um, we have an on-campus grad student center. That's mm-hmm. a bar. <laughs> <laughs> that serves dollar beers on Friday afternoons specifically. No. Um, and I will say that everyone thinks that Cornell is, you know, the, the earth cookie school in terms of, of having a lot of, of like, emphasis on climate change and stuff but if you walk right. by a frat house on a on a sunday morning mm-hmm. or ride your bike by it um there's a whole new species of red solo cup and, <laughs> and, and other litter populating the uh the they they have so, gotten in trouble with their with their fraternities a couple of times and we did actually have a student death that was associated with a unsanctioned oh. party at a fraternity so there actually has been a big debate at Cornell reflecting the larger nation national debate on the role of of fraternities and and things like that yeah there's been it's it's one of those very tragic type deaths that it happens a couple of times every year or two and then there is a big conversation about why are we doing this how are we letting this into the environment of our youth so on and so forth so then so then you're, so you've kind of skipped the party scene at Cornell because you're probably up at Syracuse at their party scene. Well, I, I try to be involved in the social, the social scene, maybe not the, maybe not the party scene. All right. All right. Um, so but, then is there, is there a really good um, Frisbee club going on out there or what is it? Yeah. What is it that you, uh, what did you used to play uh, the I, I played a lot of ultimate Frisbee. Ultimate uh, Frisbee. I, okay. They have a, I didn't play on the, t- any of the, the two teams that they have uh, this year. Uh, because I was too scared of writing my papers. And if you bomb your classes because you're too busy playing Frisbee, that's pretty bad uh, conversation to have with your parents (laughs) or yourself. Uh, So I've tried to, to, to lay off on it, the the Frisbeeing a little bit, Um, but no, it's pretty, and and 
going back to like the, the kind of party thing is I have, I have a few classmates that are from that, that are Muslim that don't drink. Okay. They, maybe it's a personality thing that they're more, more introverted or, or have their own social circles that they run in. Uh, but you will never see them at any of the social events. Right. Even there just to not drink and hang out. Even there just to not drink. Right, right, right. I, I go, I try, we had a, a group like class discussion that got out on Friday afternoons, like 20 minutes before the grad student center opened. So everyone would always get together from there and go to the graduate student center. And most people have no idea what's in your cup and they don't really care as long as you're there chatting it up with them. And right. so I've never, it's never been something, but it, coming from a school like Andrews where, you know, it's not talked about even if it's present to have it be very yeah, relaxed. It's right. It's completely unacceptable. Yeah. The, the difference between, and I've been to both, you know, state and um, private Christian universities and the, and the difference is amazing. Although um, who, let's see, I was listening to an interview um, and who was it? It was like, uh, it was like a rapper that was being interviewed and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I, you know, we drink champagne. And then I tell the staff after the first bottle just to bring mine as a ginger ale, you know, so he'll have a cup that looks like champagne and all night long, he's just drinking ginger ale. He's like, I'm a lightweight. I just can't handle it. And I don't care to. So like if, yeah, I think most people really don't care what's in your cup. I think that's a misnomer from a conservative world where like they think that you're going to be, um, you know, um, made fun of because you're not drinking and really nobody frigging cares, dude. No, I, yeah, nobody cares that if anything, they say good job and good on you for it. Right. <laughs> right. I know. Or, or they're like fantastic. So if tonight gets a little bit long, you'll give me a ride. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So I got, I got one last question um, for you here. We can continue to talk chat chat, but I got one last question for you here. So I'm sure you've read a lot of books. Then there's a little piece in me, I'll be honest, that's a little bit jealous because there's probably all sorts of cool learning. There's all sorts of cool professors and I'm feeling a little bit missing out on it. So if you were to pick one good book that you read this year in school um, that you think everybody that is doing some kind of planning or landscape architecture or architecture should read, what is that one book? Seeing Like a State by James Scott. Seeing Like a State by James Scott. Give me a short synopsis. So um, I read the book, I read part of the book for a class. <laughs> and it's, this is the only happened to me in grad school, really, uh, where I read the book for the class, part of the book for the class, and I had to go back and read the rest of the book because I liked it so much. Oh, that's cool. Um, so James Scott is a, I think a Harvard professor. And um, this is one of his earlier books. He has a, a bunch of them, but uh, yeah. it's called seeing like a state. And then the, the, sh the longer title is how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed. And part of it is a larger critique of uh, a system of beliefs that he uh, calls high modernism. Mm hmm. Um, yep. And the the confidence and the ability to design and operate a, so a society that's like science based, mm -hmm. that's purely. So the main example that he uses throughout the book is scientific forestry, yeah, which was invented by the the Germans uh, primarily, which was basically treating trees like an agricultural monocrop, and how it right. it ended up 
not working. Um, but the professor that introduced it to me, um, there are really about five different, uh, different books you can, or, or different classes you can teach out, out of what, what of what he writes about. And he's a, by training a political scientist. Uh, so, um, but it talks a lot uh, about urban space and, and, and different things. And it's, some of it is a little creepy how he, how he predicts some of the stuff that that's now being debated in our society. Um, and he's still writing. He had another book published, I think two years ago or something like that. But yeah, uh, that's one that I really, it can be tough to get through at times. Um, but it's a really, really good book. And, and the last conclusion has, um, five recommendations for doing a development project. Uh, and, and those recommendations are just, I think they're just so spot on. <laughs> really? Uh, so, yeah. Well, you know, it's, I don't think that you can talk about development um, and planning without interjecting politics. Otherwise, all it is is just an idea. And what you need is you need politics to be the engine to help get this idea in motion because it's difficult to create change in large groups of people. It's just really, really difficult to, to generate change. And that's what you're generally trying to do. One of my favorite lectures from this year, uh, which was in my, it was last semester in my introductory, uh, introduction to planning practice class, um, taught by Linda Shy, who is very good, has some really good stuff on ocean and sea level rise. But she brings in a cake for us to celebrate. Um, and we have to, as a class, figure out how to divide the cake fairly. Really? So that every person has a fair, and it took us the hour long class period to not come up with a way to do it. Are you kidding? Fairly. <laughs> Versus there's 20 of us and we'll quit, cut it into 20 pieces. What was the argument with that? Well, I'm bigger and like fatter. I deserve more. Some people like different kinds of pieces. Uh, who lines up and gets to choose first? Uh, we we got down into what kind of cake it is. Who paid for the cake? <laughs> oh <laughs> Do they my deserve goodness. it? Because the department paid for the cake. Um, do we deserve the cake more than other people? <laughs> uh, it, I think maybe it wouldn't. Might it might be a little different with a group of freshmen uh, than than a group of masters. Students. Right, because the freshmen, yeah, the freshmen would be like, I don't care, just bring a bunch of cake, right? Whereas the I, master I, I, students were like treating it like a real uh, social experiment. Yeah, uh, but but. Um, that one was something that, you know, kind of not necessarily political, but just the difficulties of, of a shared, the, the, a shared right. resource. Or, or that. Right. Absolutely. It's a shared resource. And then put on that resource, you know, emotional um, stigmas and values and morals. And then you say, okay, society, let's decide how the hospital system is going to work. And this is the cake and who's going to pay for that and who's going to get what care. And it is complex. Um, and really, probably she said they're all going to act like petulant children and that is a perfect example of what our society is right now and it'll turn into a big long hour-long discussion and, and it'll be fantastic so did you end up having cake or did you guys just give up and say screw it we did end up having cake but um we didn't really care about uh making it fair or equitable in the end we just decided that we're going to cut it all up and that some, some people will not want cake <laughs> Yeah, and that's fine. And some people want cake and some people from another class the year before knew that this was the cake 
lecture day. So they came by to grab some cake. <laughs> and we yeah, ended up having and, extra, so that definitely made it. Oh, made surplus. It. That, that's what creates economy and society. So yeah, so really the, what the learning was, was that at the end of the day, you're gonna have to be okay with not getting what you want and it's not, and not everybody's gonna get the same thing and it won't be fair. So really a model of society is, utopia is not fair. It's just the reality that it'll never be equal. All right, well, I think that's about our time. I will stop it at the cake story because I think that's really entertaining. Um, what else is going on in Connor's life? I have my internship starting uh, on the first, which is very exciting because I got one that uh, is a available and optimal in spite of that my friends was connor reed smith it gave us a picture of how the folk that will be planning our major spaces someday get their start thank you connor for sharing and thank the rest of you for listening this week I would be remiss not to thank our team at Rootbound for their continued support of Lonnie and my projects. Rootbound, a landscape design studio serving Southwest Michigan. Please share if you enjoyed yourself and plan to come back for more, but please don't go away mad. Just go away.